The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Hello and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. Well, this time of year, the global economy goes to Washington for the annual meetings of the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. Now, global governance is one of the big themes at next month's Bloomberg New Economy Forum in Beijing. So I had even more reason than usual to spend a few days at the meetings, testing the mood, talking to smart people including a member of the Federal Reserve's Interest Rate Committee, Robert Kaplan, and the former heads of the German and Indian central banks. You'll hear some of that later. But first, we have a report from a country that's tested the Bretton Woods institutions, the IMF and the World Bank, more than most, Argentina. There are four kinds of country in the world, the economist Simon Kuznets once said, developed, undeveloped, Japan and Argentina. Since 1950, the South American country has spent one-third of its time in recession, second only to the Democratic Republic of Congo. Things were supposed to be different under President Maurizio Macri, who swept to power in 2015, promising structural reforms. But now the country's back in recession and dependent again on a massive bailout from the IMF. Macri lost badly in August primary elections to his left-wing challenger, Alberto Fernandez. That shock result triggered panic in the country's financial markets and led to some familiar policy solutions, capital controls, price freezes and wage hikes. Now the general election is just around the corner. Bruce Douglas reports from Buenos Aires on what Argentines and the IMF may have learned from their latest entanglement. busy neighbourhood of downtown Buenos Aires, a stone's throw from the city courthouses, the Bar Los Galgos has catered to a mix of lawyers, professionals and tourists for almost 100 years. Waitresses bustle behind the chrome counter as customers chatter over thick steak and egg sandwiches. In an oak-lined room above the bar, I spoke to Julian Diaz, the owner of Los Galgos. The bar opened in 1930, and it's a category of traditional bars in Mosaico called uh, Bares Notables. It's like a remarkable bars because it's important in cultural or historics. So this bar restaurant has been here since 1930. It survived a lot of ups and downs <laughs> in the Argentine economy. How did it survive all these years? And in every crisis, it's, it's a lot of places uh, close and a lot of places change his policy or lose quality or you, you can see in a lot of places who close in, in the big crisis of the end of the 80s or the, in the 2001 
and in every crisis there is we have a it's a <laughs> like a, like a scar like a but for us is the the idea is always change uh, and work with a lot of creativity if if some ingredients are very expensive we change the ingredients one of the biggest challenges for any business in Argentina is how to cope with the runaway rates of inflation, with price rises currently running over 50%. Yes, it's impossible to understand to uh, foreign people. Uh, coffee one month ago was 72, uh, three weeks ago was 80, two weeks ago it's 90, and possibly the next week is 100 pesos. Because the coffee is, um, is an import, Argentina doesn't produce coffee, and the coffee... It's in, in dollars, in all the world, not in Argentina. But for us, the the impact of the inflation or the devaluation of the peso in that kind of product were very popular here. Julian Diaz believes that the current crisis shows that the kind of open market economy Macri hoped to foster just doesn't work in a country like Argentina. He doesn't have long to wait to make this point at the ballot box. Elections are due on Sunday. But with Macri losing by 16 points to Alberto Fernandez in the primary vote in August, most analysts believe the result is a foregone conclusion. Fernandez and his running mate, former President Cristina Kirchner, hail from the so-called Peronist wing of Argentine politics. Juan Domingo Perón, army officer, three-time president and husband of Evita, cast a long shadow over the country almost 50 years after his death. In her two terms of office, Kirchner implemented the kind of populist and protectionist measures Peronists love, such as capital controls, trade barriers and subsidies. It's not clear how much power Kirchner would wield in a Fernandez administration, but the man who would be president has hardly been transparent about his plans for economic policy either. Amid the uncertainty, many fear a repeat of the past. Okay, I'm Marina Del Pocheto, I'm an economist, I am a consultant for enterprises and banks and other companies. We are here in the University of Buenos Aires, this is the Faculty of Economics, and we are right here in the, the Museum of External Debt in Argentina. <laughs> And so not many countries perhaps have a, a museum dedicated to external debt. Why does Argentina? Yeah, because of the long story with the debts and default. Let's go and I see the museum okay. is open, so let's... This is the first uh, the debt of Argentina, the Emprestito Baring, in 1824. That was the first default of Argentina. Argentina has defaulted no fewer than eight times on its foreign debt. While external events play their part in Argentina's history of woe, fiscal indiscipline is always part of the story. For Marina del Poggetto, the Kirchner administration played a major role in today's mess. Burning through a cash windfall from a commodities boom by subsidising energy costs, expanding the state payroll and even broadcasting soccer matches for free. The last government, they received surpluses and they 
create surpluses in, uh, in, in deficit, both fiscal and external. They destroyed the, 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 the relative prices uh, in trying to stabilize inflation while they push incomes and the public expenditures. But The Economist does not exempt the Macri administration from blame. During the Macri administration, he used the debt in order to try to make a gradual policy to try to, to, to fix the problems that, that the Kirchnerismo... Uh, they made a lot of mistakes that, because the agenda was very difficult, but they tried to fix each problem without taking into account that they are connected. <laughs> so if you increase uh, energy prices, you will push up inflation. If you have a, an expansive fiscal policy and a very restrictive monetary policy, you will have a problem. To avoid big cuts in public spending, Macri tolerated big deficits. Creditors hungry for juicy returns gobbled up Argentina's dollar-denominated debt like there was no tomorrow, or indeed, no long history of default. But when a loss of market confidence triggered a run on the peso, the president was forced to turn to the IMF, as so many Argentine presidents have before. All told, the fund pledged $56 billion, its largest loan ever. Since Macri's defeat at the ballot box in August, the IMF has commented little about its plans for Argentina. In the fund's annual meeting in Washington this October, its new managing director said that talks over Argentina's credit can continue once the funds knows the next government's policy framework. For one former Argentine IMF official, the organisation's big mistake was being overly optimistic. Claudio Lossa, former director of the IMF's Western Hemisphere Department, told me that historically Latin American governments had to be dragged, kicking and screaming, through IMF adjustment programmes. When the fund found an Argentine administration that shared its aims, it became overconfident, he said. For Monica Duboli, senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics, the fund's big mistake was to hand over too much of the money up front. The main lesson um, for the fund in Argentina's case is really, is it's a bit the size of the program, which was obviously too big and binds the fund to Argentina into resolving its situation. But also, and most importantly, the fact that a lot of the funds, a lot of the disbursements were given up front, taking away the incentive for authorities to actually implement the measures that they had promised to implement under the program. So front loading was a big mistake. The IMF's optimistic assumptions about Argentina's growth prospects also had little basis in experience. After all, the fund has bailed out the South American countries so often that it's even inspired a local board game, Eternal Debt. The concept's not that different from Monopoly, except the goal isn't to become a property mogul, but to defeat the IMF. The fund, however, is hardly the cause of the Argentine crisis. That lies in its government's tendencies to spend way more than it receives. While Brazil and some of the other countries in the region used the commodities boom of the 2000s to pay down debt and strengthen reserves, Argentina went on a spending spree. Claudio Lossa suggested that Argentines tend to believe they can live at a level that is much higher than they can actually afford. Back in the museum, Marina Del Poggetto said that this habit explains the country's perennial crises. People only think on the short term. The, the, the big opportunity was during the Kirchnerismo, when other countries 
use the opportunity in order to try to stabilize and the, 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 the macroeconomics and to create a currency. In the case of Argentina, we decided to, to maximize the short term in order to, to grow it. I, I don't know if it is the, something that the Argentinians got in the, in, the, in, the, in the head or it is because of the history, no? because of the history. But it is uh, every, every crisis is, uh, has a big cost, not only in terms of, of the default, in terms of the society destruction. Whoever wins Sunday's elections faces a long road ahead. This is Bruce Douglas for Bloomberg News. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. That's how the world looks from Buenos Aires. At the annual World Bank and IMF meetings in Washington, the focus was global and the mood, it's fair to say, was downbeat. When the IMF's new managing director, Kristalina Gorgieva, told the meetings that the global outlook was precarious, that was supposed to be a comment on the fragile state of the economic recovery. But you couldn't help thinking she was also talking about the fragile state of global institutions. The Trump administration's refusal to play by the usual rules in international affairs has a lot of people rattled. Some wonder whether the multilateral system can even survive. We got into some of that on a so-called Big Think panel I took part in for the global banking organisation, the Institute for International Finance. My fellow panellists were an illustrious bunch, the former chair of the President's Council of Economic Advisers under George W. Bush, Glenn Hubbard, the distinguished economist and former head of the Indian Central Bank, Raghuram Rajan, and the former Bundesbank president, Axel Weber, now president of UBS. And the moderator you'll hear asking the questions was the head of the IIF, Tim Adams. Multilateralism, the commitment to multilateralism, seems to be on the wane. So, Stephanie, are we worried? Should we be worried? Are you worried about where we're going? Could we recreate those institutions again? Could we get John Maynard Keynes and Harry Dexter White and the other 40 sitting in New Hampshire to come up with something similar? Would, would it just crumble and, and because we couldn't agree to even the size of the table? How do you see institutions? I, think, I wonder if there's anyone in this room who isn't worried about the direction we're going in. Um, but certainly on the question of the institutions, I mean... Uh, the question has been asked in different ways over the last couple of years, particularly in response to the trade wars, but actually in response to the general attitude of the US, shall we say, the US administration to the rest of the world. And the question is, can these institutions survive, let alone thrive, without the US as a willing and active participant who can see 
the big picture and not just the national interest. And I think that's, that is clearly a question that gets asked senior officials in the G20 who are often sort of going into huddles at summits, trying to have the kind of G20 minus one meetings, and those meetings do happen. And I think there is a kind of underground uh, operation to keep the wheels turning and to have when you can't do deals on a global basis, can you do a deal with, with willing partners that maintain some of this sort of commitment to multilateralism? But your mention of, of Harry Dexter White and Keynes reminds us, you know, one of the reasons these institutions worked was that they weren't entirely fair and multilateral when it came to the US. Um, certainly from my experience in the US Treasury and everyone else has seen the same thing. You know, it started with a bare-knuckle fight between the US and the UK, the US won, and that was the basis on which policy was done within those institutions. And you had to, you know, if you're the US executive director of the IMF, everyone wants to know what your position is before you start the conversation. So we shouldn't sort of uh, idealize the sort of kumbaya aspect of these institutions, but clearly they did produce, there's there's a public good aspect, which has been incredibly important and of course, any of us worry, especially in the response to another global downturn, let alone financial crisis, whether the wheels would still turn, whether you still have enough of that stock of, of shared trust and norms um, to respond. We've certainly seen, and this is going back to the economics, you know, when it comes to trade, we could all people who can do their numbers about what the impact of a particular tariff is, and usually the numbers are quite small, just like the numbers were always quite small when you try to look at the direct effects of a trade deal, because we all knew that it was the kind of dynamic consequences that would be important. I think what we have underestimated and has been brought home by the last couple of years is how uncertainty about the whole system can really produce investment, have confidence and investment just grinding to a halt. And that's what worries me in general. If you can have that kind of effect, uncertainty around the trading rules can really do short-term damage to the supply side that we might have expected would take years um, to happen. What's the the, um, other side of that when you're talking about just the general way that countries deal with each other? So, yeah, I'm I'm pretty worried. You you raise a good point, and I assume we're all multilateralists, globalists, internationalists. I plead guilty to all those things. Uh, But, Glenn, do we ever nostalgize what these institutions were before? I I, I remember presidents we worked for went crazy about going to G20 or G7 meetings. I I don't think Clinton or Obama was either. I think that's probably right. I mean, I, I want to start off first by picking up on something Stephanie said, the risk premium now in business investment as a result of the policy uncertainty is probably large enough in the U.S. to overwhelm the corporate tax change. So this has a very large effect. It's not the small direct effect of trade, but there's no audience of business people that doesn't focus on this. And the effect on investment and supply chains is is real and pernicious. I mean, to your question, Tim, the Bretton Woods Institution's are probably not what we would design today if we were to have a a discussion, assuming people would even meet to have that discussion. But multilateralism and what it represents remains absolutely critical. And I would add to that not just the Bretton Woods institutions, but the World Trade Organization, the OECD, other venues for policymakers to come together, I think are are still vital. Without American leadership, I'm incredibly skeptical that any of this has a future. I think it's naive to say that others will step into the breach and fulfill the promise of multilateralism without the United States. So I I don't really think there is a G19-type solution 
America is still the big kid on the block, uh, and, and we, need to, we need to get at this. We see this everything from the uh, problems in China trade, where a multilateral solution would have been more effective. Uh, we see this in the failure to get together on a variety of policy topics. And were we to have a significant global recession, I wonder where the coordinating mechanisms would be. So I, I would count myself as, as very worried by the failure of American leadership. The G's all came out of crises. The G5 and G7 was a product of the, uh, the long gas lines, the oil crisis of the 70s. The G20 was created by Larry and, yep. and, and others in response to the Asia financial crisis. It was elevated you know, to the heads of state in response to the great financial crisis. Do we need a crisis to rally around or create the new G or, or, or just give heft to the current G's? I think we may need one. And it's for this reason. I, I think I'm going to be a little naive and say, yes, we needed the United States, but if the United States doesn't come to the table, the world has to find an alternative solution. I mean, this is the house that the U.S. built post-World War II, and it has a pole position for the United States, and that was a good thing because the United States often wasn't part of the combatants, but it was the one who ensured that there was generally peace. Mm -hmm. Now it's not only one of the combatants, but it's sort of breaking down the rules. And, you know, what's the alternative if the U.S. doesn't come back? And most people think, oh, this is just this administration, it's going to pass. Well, there's a deeper-seated issue with China, the rise of China, and who's going to uh, be dominant. And my sense is the world has to move on from the old structure to one where we don't have 20 people at the table determining anything, but we have three or four people, uh, three or four entities, so probably China, the U.S., the EU, maybe Japan, who sit together and sort of, uh, it, it's more adapted to a multipolar world. It may still be the case the U.S. is dominant, but it can't be that it is privileged by the rules because that will ensure China doesn't participate. We need something that brings China in also. So my guess is we need change, but I, I think you're absolutely right. It's not going to happen for two reasons. One, Washington is not going to give up the pole position. Mm -hmm even if it doesn't really do what, what it takes until, in a sense, there's a change in attitude in Washington. And that may take a long time. It may take China to be much bigger before Washington says we do need to bring them in. And the other is, you know, it may be that we need a full-fledged crisis in order to say the system is broken, we need to build it up again. I, I hope we don't go there, but we do need change. Actually, too pessimistic. If you'd run this town 15 or 20 years ago during this week, the streets would have been full of rioters, there were tear gas, I remember, you, know, you, couldn't, you couldn't get across town. There's massive protests going on. We don't see that anymore. Did Christine Lagarde do a fantastic job in reshaping the profile of the IMF? Why there was there no more profile? If, if the institutions don't work and we're worried about globalization, we're worried about all these issues, why is there no protest going on, why? So I think, like, like Raghu, I, I, I firmly believe that the emergence of China and the integration of China into the international Bretton Woods institutions was an absolutely needed thing to do, and we were slow, we were behind the curve, and even today, I don't think where we should be. If you were to redesign the Bretton Woods organization now, with more than half of the world's population living in Asia, it would not be US-centric. It would not be, US-centricity reflected the outcome of the Second World War and how these organizations were created. Now they need to be more inclusive. 
And what you're seeing is when, when I came to the official sector, it was in the early 2000s, we had discussions around the table. I remember we had the G20 presidency in 2004. It was about creating local currency bond markets. We haven't progressed at all on that. And so many of the agenda items got delayed or washed out by the financial crisis. I think the Bretton Woods organizations, to your question about Christine, did a great job in helping overcome the financial crisis. I think we were very coordinated during the crisis because it was the interest of both the United States, Europe, and most parts of Asia to get on top of this crisis. The central banks have been very coordinated. The IMF played a very strong facilitating role. And I remember a meeting in a basement in Korea where Tim uh, Adams, uh, Tim Geithner was still the, the, the Treasury Secretary, where the US was very clearly saying, we will give up part of the seats at the IMF table uh, in order to facilitate China coming in. And many of the Europeans put their constituencies together and gave up quota to bring them in. That hasn't really progressed to a new level where it should be now. So we started in the deep crisis. We made some progress, but we didn't go the full way. Going forward, these organizations need to reinvent themselves in order to be relevant. Because if, if really it takes another crisis, I don't think the crisis will come from the area where we're now prepared for and those organizations need to play a new role in any next financial crisis. And if anything, the official sector, because of the bad experience on how we dealt with the last crisis, has less crisis-fighting tools now available than they did before the last crisis. The Fed has much less tools at their disposal that they can use fast without going to Capitol Hill. The same is pretty much true in Europe to a lesser extent, but it's true everywhere. And so I feel that we're not well prepared for the next crisis, and it's yep. these international organizations that can help us get everyone aligned, and they don't, they, they're not in the position to do that now because they lack some legitimacy. Can I give you a twist on that? <laughs> okay. That all these institutions were designed to facilitate and were built around the idea of globalization, globalization was good. Has globalization stopped? Are we deglobalizing? And does that mean it's more difficult to solve some of these challenging transnational problems. Well, I do think that's the, there is a, there's a deeper challenge to these institutions and the mindset that they represent. And it's not just, uh, it's not so much globalization, although we can certainly debate whether this might end up being kind of peak globalization, because um, there's, there's clearly things moving in different directions there. But the currency of these institutions, the currency for international collaboration is what's going to make your economy grow. And by and large, that was, you know, in the last, last 20, 30 years, there was a recipe for growth that was how you got people to do things. I think what's, what scrambled the system in so many different ways in the last few years, and you see with populism, but it's not just populism, is a willingness to put the economy second, to do things that you know will damage the economy. Um, we've clearly, we saw that in Brexit, whatever happens with Brexit, you know, one of the things that... Uh, was always clear was you didn't vote for Brexit if you were putting the economy first. But it's not just Brexit. We've clearly got that uh, when you think about the immigration debate here and many of the things that's animated Donald Trump. We have, by the way, on the other side, got that now in spades in the response to the climate change. And how does one have an, an effective decarbonisation strategy? We want to achieve economic growth as part of that but it certainly is putting itself up there as something which is as more important than economic growth. I mean, and Raghu has written about it, uh, about many of these non-economic issues and the need to rebalance in his, 
in his book. So I think that, you know, that's maybe a more fundamental thing when, when Axel talks about how, what kind of institution, these institutions need to reinvent themselves. Can they reinvent themselves uh, in a way that's going to be able to grapple with these much broader dilemmas that actually don't put the economy at the heart of things? I, I completely agree with that. You know, one of the most penetrating questions of the financial crisis was asked by the Queen of England when she said, why did nobody see it coming? And I, I think asking the present Bretton Woods institutions to lead on this without knowledge of the underlying national currents that are upsetting the mix is part of the problem. I don't think we have to choose between globalization and tipping the table over, but we do have to remember that in most industrial economies, there are large segments, politically potent segments, that have not benefited nearly as handsomely from either globalization or technological change as people in this room. And there are, until we deal with policies that affect those people's lives, we're not going to see the support for globalization come back. So it's not a matter of needing more conferences or a slightly different institution. We have to have those local concerns at heart. And I'm not sure that our elites do. Well, that was The Economist Glenn Hubbard speaking with me and others at the Big Think panel organised by the Institute for International Finance in Washington. Now, of course, trade is only one of the forces that's helped globalise our world. The other is technology. We know new technologies are changing the way the economy works in lots of different ways, including businesses' ability to set their own prices. So while I was in D.C., I spoke about the U.S. economy to Robert Kaplan, president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas and a member of the Fed's Open Market Committee. I found myself wondering whether the Fed could even control inflation anymore. Before we go, I thought I'd play you a little bit of that exchange. You talked about all the structural forces that yeah. are affecting um, the economy, productivity certainly affecting potential growth. Yeah. And you did mention pricing power, yeah. uh, the impact on globalisation and technology on pricing power. Yeah. Do you think, on the basis of the last few years, that central banks can still reliably raise inflation, given the structural changes underway in the economy? So th this would be an example where, where we've been, I'm, we, we're, having a, we're having a very significant debate on this, I, and I may be a little bit of an outlier. And for those who know, we've had two technology-enabled disruption conferences that we've hosted in Dallas for the whole system. For outsiders, and if you would like to come, we're going to have our next one June 25th and 26th. And yeah, my own view is that the structure of the economy has changed dramatically. And a lot of it as a business person, I've lived through it, where the things that are driving pricing power, a number of them are away from monetary policy. It's not that monetary policy doesn't have a role to play, but, but I can assure you that when I talk to business leaders, and, and I'm careful not to mention industries or um, companies, but I have a number in my mind as I'm talking here, give me an industry, I'll tell you a story of lack of pricing power, disruption, uh, and maybe the one I like to use because it's the most familiar to people, but I go, go through every single industry. But, you know, everybody here has bought a car, so I like to use that one. So 15 years ago, if you went in to buy a car at a, a car dealer, you went in, you dealt with a salesperson. That person was the highest paid person in the car dealership. There were lots of them. You happened to get one. And you went in and negotiated. It was normally an unpleasant experience. And you weren't sure whether you were, you know, whether you're getting a good deal and 
God only knows. And that's how you bought a car. Roll forward to today. Today, that salesperson you dealt with, if, if he or she works there, they're making half of what they used to make. There's fewer of them. They're called product specialists. They're not negotiating at all. You're going online. You're picking five dealers. You're picking the car. You know the price. You know the model. You know everything. When you walk in, there's no negotiating. And oh, by the way, if you look at new car prices over the last X number of years, you'll notice there the used car business is a little more attractive, but they don't have any pricing power. You see there's been an erosion because there's just so much transparency, and the leverage has gone from the seller to the buyer. Technology has done that. Consumer has in the palm of his or her hand more computing power today than most companies did 15 years ago. And we take it like, oh, yeah, it's a big deal. So now you go into a car dealer. They're rapidly merging. This is why there's so much merger activity. There's margin erosion. And the highest paid person, the car dealer, is a person you didn't deal with that much. It's the automotive technician. That person's making 150 grand a year. They can't find enough of them. We need to ramp up, and we are ramping up in different city skills training to provide more automotive technicians. But there's a rapid consolidation. And so there's one of the symptoms of this lack of pricing power is record level of merger activity because if you don't have pricing power and you have margin erosion, what do you do? Scale, scale, scale. You need more scale. But doesn't that mean central banks really can't necessarily meet the inflation target it, anymore? It means, None of the major central banks have been able to meet their inflation target for the last 10 years. In a it means way. as a central banker, you have to realize this reality. And yet it, it causes you, I'll put this uh, euphemist, it should cause us to reframe to some degree how we think about monetary policy in this context. By the way, I'll, having said all this, you should know at the Dallas Fed, we look at a core inflation measure of called the trim mean, we're running at 2%. But I'm, I'm a little more leery of, uh, of believing that uh, drops in the Fed funds rate will have the same effect on inflation, to your point, that they might have thought to have had 10, 15, 20 years ago. But doesn't that put the credibility of central banks at risk? If they keep trying to hit something and suggesting they can hit something, which they know in their hearts they can't. I think it's very much, this is my view, it's very much incumbent on me as a central banker to call out these structural trends and explain some of them might be able to be affected by monetary policy, but many of them are structural. And so I think it's very important that we call that out and adapt our thinking and our frameworks to take into account, yes. Thanks for listening to Stephanomics. We'll be back next week with more on-the-ground insights into the global economy. In the meantime, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, website, app, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review our show so it can reach more listeners. For more news and analysis from Bloomberg Economics, follow at Economics on Twitter. You can also find me on at my Stephanomics. This week's report from Argentina was written and edited by Bruce Douglas with assistance from Jorgelina de Rosario and Patrick Gillespie. Special thanks to the Institute for International Finance, the Reinventing Bretton Woods Committee for that Kaplan interview, Axel Weber, Glenn Hubbard, Raghuram Rajan, and Robert Kaplan. The episode was produced by Magnus Hendrickson and edited by Scott Lamb, who is the executive producer of Stephanomics. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcasts.
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.